the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Normally, I'd mention who the guest is at this point, but we don't have a guest for this program. I'm flying solo. It's probably mostly my fault, but I think it works out very well this way. I also uh, begin the program with a rant, and I do have something of a rant for us today, and it's these people who are writing UFO books that don't really understand the phenomenon. People who are supposedly investigating UFOs and don't understand the phenomenon. People who um, are pontificating about UFOs and don't understand the phenomenon. I think in today's world, the environment we live in with the internet, if you're going to write a book about UFOs, you have an obligation to follow a case to its very end. You have an obligation to make sure you have all the information and you've properly um, examined that information so that you don't blunder into things. Yes, I understand we all make mistakes. And I understand it's very simple in the world today to be led astray by some of this stuff. But I don't think it's important that we need to... Um, follow the trail to the very end. I used to do something on my blog and, and I do it only periodically still called chasing footnotes. And it's following the sources to the very end to see what the original source had to say about a, a phenomenon, about a crash, about a sighting. Too often that doesn't happen. And I wonder why that doesn't happen. Sure. Years ago, it was very difficult to do those sorts of things with having to go to libraries and access um, uh, interlibrary exchanges and that sort of thing. But in today's environment, you can go uh, online. You can look at newspaper articles from any time you want to look at, from any area you want to look at. Sometimes you have to sign up for a week of free subscriptions to their archives and things like that. But it's a, it's a way of getting the information. And it, and it really annoys me when someone writes a book about a UFO sighting or a UFO event, and they've only done a superficial search of the literature. They've only done a superficial examination. They don't take it to the end to see if there's additional information. Best example of this I can think of off the top of my head is when I wrote Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky, there was a sighting that uh, crashed that supposedly took place in Del Rio, Texas in 1948. We had an affidavit signed by an Air Force colonel who was uh, allegedly there. And as I was starting the research for that book, I thought, well, let's see what's new on the internet and I found a whole bunch of additional information and I eventually came to the conclusion that the man who claimed to be a colonel in the Air Force was not. He'd been a colonel in the Civil Air Patrol. I've mentioned this before and there'll be more information on my blog about this. All you have to do is type in Robert Willingham to get to the bottom of it. Point simply is because of the internet, I was able to clarify an awful lot of problems in that case. And I think that's something that 
we need to do as as researchers. And if you're going to publish an article or publish a book, that it's your you have the obligation to follow it to the end to make sure you have all the information and you have it accurately. But that's something for those of you who are interested in writing books or writing articles. I think what we need to do is look at a brief history of UFO investigations because of the situation we find ourselves in today. Back in 1947, as you all know, Kenneth Arnold saw the UFO, saw the flying saucers near Mount Rainier, Washington. The term flying saucers came about because of that, um, that sighting. During the summer of 1947, there are a great number of events going on, lots of sightings going on. The Roswell crash took place in the summer of 1947, and we can argue about whether it was a crash of a weather balloon or a mogul balloon or a flying saucer, but everybody agrees there was some, something that came down. According to Ed Ruppelt, who was one time the chief of Project Blue Book, in the summer of 1947, the Pentagon was in a panic. And I think that was because they didn't know what was going on. They were getting all this information and they didn't have a good basis for examining that information. The point simply is that um, a Brigadier General named Shulgin and his uh, assistant, his deputy, his uh, aide, um, a Lieutenant Colonel named uh, George Garrett, put together what they called an estimate of the situation, not the big one you hear about, but this was a mini one, had 16 sightings of it. And what they wanted to do is they sent it to the Air Material Command, which was the home of the intelligence service and General Twining. Their plan was to have him examine these cases or have his people examine these cases and give them a response. And they think they expected the response to be, yeah, we know about this because it's a secret project. But instead, Twining issued a statement in September of 1947 that said the phenomenon that we're investigating, the flying saucers, the UFOs as they became called, was a phenomenon that was something real. It wasn't illusionary. It wasn't fictitious. It was something real. And Twining set up a project to investigate. It was going to be a project that worked under a umbrella of classification. It, most of the reporting at that time was secret. They did not really release the name of the project to the public. It was Project Sign. They called it Project Saucer in the public arena. The point simply is here we had an investigation set up, what, 75 years ago to investigate UFOs, investigate flying saucers with a classified project that was had a high priority. Let's fast forward to today. Now we hear about the Tic Tacs. We see the Navy cockpit videos. We hear discussions of flying saucers. Congress is interested in it. We were to have a report in June of last year, June 25th of last year, about what they had found. Some kind of an investigation was supposed to be conducted. It would take six months, 180 days, and then they would report to Congress. It looks like the people who were tasked to create this report to investigate these sightings didn't really bother with it until the very last minute when the news media became interested in it again, and there was a great deal of talk about this upcoming report. Well, as we all know, it was not very good. It I've always labeled it as kind of a C-minus high school report. It was some 19 pages long. We got some of it. And they said, basically, uh, we looked at 144 reports. Didn't specify was that was 144 separate cases or if... Uh, there were fewer fewer cases and multiple witnesses to those cases or how exactly that was set up. And they were going to have a subsequent report 90 days later. That never happened. Instead, around the beginning of the year, 
we learned that there was legislation going on in the Congress to establish a new investigation. Uh, according to the documentation, the office is going to be called, the new offices are going to be called, the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group, the AOIMSG. It's crummy, and that, uh, um, pseudonym for the report because we cannot acronym, suitable acronym for the report because we can't reduce it to a nice thing like UFO or something that we can pronounce, the ATIP program, for example. But the problem here is that we're not going to see much of it. There were reports that have come out in the last week, uh, Sunday, I think it was, where it was discussed that there is a push to keep all of this classified, at least as a secret level. A secret level is easier to penetrate than top secret. It, the top secret requires much more um, dedicated um, um, safety for the, for the reports. Uh, for example, uh, secret material can be kept in a safe that meets certain specifications. I think it's 600 pounds and, and things like that, where top secret requires a vault, that, that sort of thing. But they're, they're talking about it being classified, which is not the best way to obtain transparency. We are told that this was going to be something available to the public. We were told that we would have access to the information unless it affected national security, which is a nice umbrella to hide these things under. And I know that they do this frequently, um, say it's a matter of national security and they are not required to release information uh, because of that. And oftentimes in the UFO field, when it's classified as national security, there are other problems with it. It doesn't, it wasn't classified top secret because of the UFO information, but either the source of the information or the uh, gathering methods of the information, that sort of thing. And that becomes a matter of national security or suggests something about our capabilities that would be a benefit to our competitors in the world. But I look at this thing and we're supposed to be open and above board about it now. And we're supposed to be moving toward disclosure, which means we're going to be able to see all the records. And, and we know that's just hasn't happened in the last 75 years. Sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get information through FOIA and it can take literally years to get a response as you put all that material together or they put it together to send it to you. And there's a new wrinkle on this as well, where they've, uh, they used to waive the charges for copying and the, that sort of thing. And now they're charging outrageous uh, fees to search for the information or copy the information and that sort of thing. So it's another way of kind of hiding the information without really hiding the information. But my problem here is this umbrella of, of, of secrecy that they're going to bring down over this stuff. That's not what we were talking about. We have moved to the point where we were 75 years ago. We have a um, authorization for another investigation. We have a request for uh, utilization of military and governmental sources to gather this information, but we're also going to keep it classified. Now, some of it I can understand, especially if, it, if there's some kind of intercept that has been attempted or there is cockpit video that could leak uh, or, or suggest um, our methods of, of um, gathering information in the cockpit or the way the heads-up displays work and all of that sort of thing. I get all of that. Uh, 
But I think that we've um, often classified material that doesn't need to be classified. We overclassify stuff. And I'm afraid that's where we're going to be going with this information in today's environment. So I think what's going to happen here is there may be the office, it may be op opened up, it may begin to operate, but there's going to become a point where um, we're going to run into the umbrella of secrecy and not be allowed the information. So we're going to be back where we were 75 years ago with those of us on the outside attempting to uh, figure out what's going on or find sources that will allow us to get the information that we want. Um, ignoring some of the uh, classifications, but also keeping in mind, I think we need to keep in mind the idea of national security that we don't inadvertently expose uh, classified information to our competitors in the world. So I think that's one of the problems we're gonna be running into in the next few weeks next few months as they begin this investigation into the um, uh, UFOs in today's environment. I will be back right after this, so please stick around. And welcome back. As you can see, I'm doing my thing for COVID by sitting here all by myself. I thought one of the things we need to talk about, or maybe I should say I'm about to commit ufological suicide. What this means is I think it's time to clear the air about some of the subcategories that are clouding the issue of UFO research. And there's many, many of these subcategories. You know, there's cattle mutilations and abductions and crop circles and crash retrievals and triangular sightings and electromagnetic effects. I think it's time to look at some of that stuff from my point of view, because I get questions periodically, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? So let me, let me clear the air on, on some of that. And this is what my thinking is in today, which is not necessarily what I'll be thinking tomorrow about these things, because unlike some people in the field, I don't sit on an opinion forever. If new information is presented, I take a look at that information and assess it and how it fits into the current ufological thought. An example, um, Don Schmidt and I were proponents, fans of Frank Hoffman, the guy who was supposedly on the inside and was providing us with documentation and other things like that. And so when the skeptics, and I think some of the skeptics uh, attack Kaufman because they know there's no UFO visitation and anything that suggests otherwise must be a hoax, which is not really a fair assessment, but uh, turned out they were right, but that's a whole other argument. Uh, the point simply is, as we looked at this and gathered additional information, we began to realize that Frank Kaufman wasn't telling us the truth. And because of that, we had to reassess our positions on some of the things. I think that's something that we need to do. So I do this and where that's why I say, you know, this is my opinion today, but there's doesn't mean there won't be information tomorrow which will alter that opinion or change that opinion or reinforce that opinion. So let's take a shot at cattle mutilations. This was the big rage in the 1970s. Uh, Jim Lorenzen I wanted to say Lee Lorenzen for some reason. Jim Lorenzen, who was one of the directors of APRO, along with his wife, Cora Lorenzen, had called me one night 
to talk about uh, cattle mutilations. And there was something going on in Minnesota and I was the closest field investigator to uh, these, these sightings. And he asked me if I could go up to Minnesota and take a look at it. At the time, everybody was talking about how there was some kind of extraterrestrial component to the UFOs, uh, to the cattle mutilations, some kind of extraterrestrial influence there because of the way the mutilations were. We went up to Minnesota and I say, we well, this is Bob Cornett who I was working with at the time to uh, check this out. And we had the leads to a number of different witnesses and people. And one of those was a guy named Mike Douglas, which is not his real name. He uh, was a radio personality at a radio station in Minneapolis, and he helped us a great deal. But we got up there expecting to learn some things about the cattle mutilations that would be mysterious. And when we got there, we discovered it wasn't quite that mysterious at all. Um, we learned that uh, this one sighting where supposedly there was mutilated cows and there were um, landing traces, circular landing traces on the hillsides at, uh, where the snow had been melted away in circular patterns. And we went out and talked to the farmer and we learned, well, no, those weren't landing traces for UFOs. That is where um, silos had been and they had moved the silos. So there had been spillage, of course, and that sort of thing. And what we got was some warming of the ground through the uh, decomposition of the silage material that had spilled from these circular areas. So there was nothing mysterious about it. All you had to do is go talk to the farmer. And we ran into a number of things like that uh, up there on the cattle mutilation. So we became a little bit jaded in it. There was a theory that the cattle mutilations were satanic cults, and it was part of the satanic cults. And if you flew over areas of the country on satanic holidays or uh, festivals or whatever, um, you would see fires, bonfires all over the place where the Satanists were practicing their rituals. And of course, that turned out not to be true. We looked into the satanic aspect of it, and we found nothing that led us there. Instead, um, we looked at the Rommel report. And he was Ken Rommel. He was a retired FBI agent living in New Mexico, and he was commissioned by the state of New Mexico to look in the cattle mutilations to see if there's anything going on. He concluded that a great deal of them was the result of predators or scavengers and where a rancher or a farmer would have recognized the damage done by the predators, the scavengers, in the past, now they were thinking in terms of mutilations and cattle mutilations. And so they were going to be being reported as some kind of something unusual. The one that always cracked me up was a picture that had been on the internet where they said, well, there's no footprints of the scavengers around this, this mutilated animal. And if you looked at the carcass, you could see the bird droppings all over it. So that was the scavengers, the crows and the those kind of birds were feeding on the carcass. So while you didn't have the footprints of the land-based uh, predators, you had the remains from, from the birds. So looking at all of that and studying it carefully, I've concluded to my satisfaction that uh, cattle mutilations are basically explainable in terrestrial um, ways. The one thing that I never understood is why would the aliens, the travel these interstellar distances to kill and mutilate cattle and just steal the soft tissues, which were the parts that would be attacked by the predators anyway. Um, and if they were uh, taking them home as some kind of delicacy, that uh, an easier way to do it was be gathered the genetic material and take it home and then grow it on your, your, your own planet, uh, which would be 
probably less expensive than traveling interstellar distances to kill a few cows. And the other thing was, why weren't there mass mutilations of other animals? Sure, we had mutilations of other animals at the time, and we had uh, uh, that sort of thing, but nothing like the cattle mutilation. So there was a problem with this. I think Rommel's report that, that was issued um, pretty well explains it. And there was a, a couple of guys who did a, a book called Mute Evidence. And I think if you read that book, you'll get a good idea of what the cattle mutilations were about. So let's talk about um, alien abductions. I suspect most alien abductions have a terrestrial explanation. I was involved in an investigation in 1976 of a woman who lived in Utah. Talked about the um, aliens coming into the house. And I think that is the first time it was ever reported that the aliens had come into the house. And so I'm responsible for that bedroom visitation aspect of it, I suppose. Um, as we did the investigation, I was working with Jim Harder. He was doing the hypnotic regression. And what I realized much later is how he was coaching the witness subtly and probably unconsciously. After we would finish a hypnotic regression session, we would discuss a little bit of what we'd had. And he would add some additional material, say, well, you know, this happened in another case and this happened in another case. And lo and behold, in the next couple of cases, we would get that information back. And I didn't realize until I reviewed the transcripts carefully. And because I was there in that environment, I knew what had happened, that that uh, at one point, um, Harder had said to the subject, you know, Betty Hill talked about a um, examination, some kind of physical examination. And in the next session, uh, the witness said, I, I don't remember being examined, but I know I was. And then later on, she added additional detail. I think when we look at the problem of alien abduction, what we end up with is... Um, the hypnotist oftentimes inadvertently, I think, um, coaches the witness and suggests what he or she wants to find. John Mack made a statement a number of times, and, and it's quoted in a book, so that he was surprised at the, the um, matching of the abductee with the um, researcher. In other words, those who um, reported cold calculating alien scientists probably ended up in the hands of Bud Hopkins. And those who thought in terms of some kind of alien invasion and hybrids ended up in the hands of um, David Jacobs. And those who had aliens that were a little bit in, more into a Eastern philosophy ended up with John Mack. And I thought, gee, Mack should have been able to turn this around and think, well, maybe we're inadvertently leading the witness to the point we want to go. And I think that's where we are in the abduction phenomenon. I believe that there are a couple of abductions that are very, very interesting. And these are the one-offs. These are the targets of opportunity. And I'm thinking Barney and Betty Hill, although there's problems with that case. I'm thinking of Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson. And there's been a lot of research being done on this by uh, Philip Mantle in the last uh, couple of years. And uh, Calvin Parker has authored a couple of books about his experiences. What's interesting about that is, and, and uh, you know, a little bit leery about some of this, but what we find out is that there were other witnesses to that UFO on that night that Hickson and Parker talked about being abducted, but that information wasn't um, available 
1973 when the uh, abduction took place. It came about later. Some of it is documented by personal papers of some of the witnesses and things like that, which makes it much more interesting. But I think those are more likely uh, experiences with some interaction with the alien creatures as opposed to these longitudinal studies where the persons talk about, well, they, they come back uh, every other month or every other year or, or weekly or daily, and they never are able to gather any kind of, of um, physical evidence of this. There was a study that was done a number of years ago that um, we talked about on this program at one point, but the data is still being collected or being analyzed, I should say. The data is collected. They couldn't find a lot of people who wanted the monitors in their bedrooms and that sort of thing. And I certainly understand that the invasion of privacy, although there were no cameras involved, it was just uh, sort of recording the ambient um, atmosphere in the rooms, but they didn't have a, um, a camera in it, but people were reluctant to be involved in that. And it was recording just hours and hours and hours of, of information that had nothing going on. It, you know, somebody comes in the room and turns on the light and, and you get some kind of change, but nothing else is going on. So they're analyzing the data. So it's a project that's ongoing and it's very interesting in that respect, but it hasn't provided us with any evidence about uh, alien abductions. So I think that we look at it, I think most alien abductions are explainable in terrestrial terms, but I still think there are a few that we need to look at a little bit uh, with, a, with a, a little bit more in-depth. When we come back, I will be talking about more aspects of this, so please stick around. And I am back. When we went away, or I went away, I was... Um, mentioning some of the things that uh, I thought of uh, as committing ufological suicide, which means here are my opinions of me. It's not the opinion held by uh, a number of people in the UFO field. It's just the way it is. Um, I think I made it clear about alien abduction. I believe it's trustfully based, but I wanted to mention one thing and, it, and it's the problem of logistics in the alien abductions, which nobody really ever talks about. In a rover poll that was done decade, decade and a half ago, two decades ago, well, a long time ago, I think in the 1990s, actually, um, they did a survey to see if they could determine how many people had abduction experiences. And by manipulating the data, and I could go into great length about that if you want to, but I, I think we don't need to get into that minutia. But by manipulating the data, they concluded that 3 million Americans were possibly abductees, 3 million Americans. The problem with that number is, A, it's very, very large just for the United States, but you have to realize that if we have that sort of problem here in the United States, well, they have it in Canada and Brazil, and they have it in Europe and Asia and Australia and Africa and all around the world. So you can multiply that 3 million by uh, a factor of 10 probably, and then you get into a problem of logistics. Where are they parking all the spaceships? Uh, wouldn't the sky be filled with the alien spaceships abducting, uh, participating in the abductions of people? Uh, I think that that's just preposterous. And that's why I, I look at the cases of targets of opportunity because it's, it's a limited um, number of events 
that we can look to, and it limits the number of uh, people involved, and it reduces the logistical problem. But that's something that uh, we should think about when we're studying UFOs. I'm going to move on to crop circles briefly because that's one of the subsets of, of uh, ufology, and I just don't think much of them. I cannot understand why an alien race who has defeated interstellar distances, who obviously has a capability of technological advancements far beyond ours, they understand how these things work. And I would imagine we're not the first intelligent race they would have ever come in contact with. And the way they determine they're going to communicate with us is creating these oh, beautiful, in some cases, circles or designs in crops, mostly in England, by the way. There used to be a phenomenon known as saucer nests, where people would talk about how they would find a saucer-shaped, bowl-shaped depression in their crops where something might have touched down. But it was just like a big circle uh, in, the, um, in the crops. It wasn't quite these elaborate designs. So I'm thinking that um, crop circles probably have a terrestrial explanation. And I think it's pretty well examined or explained who it was and what was going on. And, and it has been mimicked by many, many other people. So I, I think we can move crop circles out of the realm of the UFO phenomenon into something else. Uh, if you wish, you can move it into the paranormal and suggest maybe some kind of entities that share the planet with us are, are trying to communicate that way. I, I don't know. I'm just not a fan of crop circles. And I was going to talk a little bit about MJ-12, but I think that's pretty well been uh, debunked, I guess would be the right word. Um, I did a long section about it in the book of uh, uh, Roswell in the 21st century and my do, new book, Understanding Roswell, has a much shorter section on it, but I don't, I haven't seen any arguments that would suggest that any of those documents are real, that uh, it's all pretty much a hoax. It's almost pretty much designed by one or two people in the beginning to, I think, to push themselves forward in the ufological spotlight and others for their own reasons have jumped on the bandwagon creating document after document and even Stan Friedman one of the major proponents of MJ-12 uh, was suggesting that the vast majority of the documents are faked. And we found the do source documents and things like that, so we know how it was done. I think uh, one of the other aspects of this I mentioned briefly was the electromagnetic effects. And this is a an effect of a close approach of the UFO where it interacts with the environment in some fashion. And I did a book as you all know, and if you go to the blog, you'll be able to see a representation of the book and you can click on it to go to uh, Amazon. Um, I think of it as kind of the second best case of for alien visitation. And it's because of the number of people involved. It's because of the Air Force's obvious attempts to cover it up or to explain it away and uh, the interaction with the environment. And the basics of it was on Ju June, on November 2nd, 1957, a number of people in around the Leveland, Texas area, and the Leveland being 15, 20 minutes from, from Lubbock, for those of you who are trying to place it in your mind, in the Panhandle area of Texas, reported the close approach of a UFO that stalled their cars, put out the headlights, filled the radios with static, and then it, when it took off, the cars would work properly again. Uh, the first report was a guy named Pedro Sacido, Korean War veteran, uh, longtime resident of the area, saw this brightly glowing blue object, and I stress the blue here, 
uh, landing near his pickup truck. The engine stalled, the lights went out. He dove out of the truck and rolled underneath it for protection. His passenger sat there petrified for a couple of minutes. The object then turned a bright red or orange and took off. And once it was gone, Saucedo got back in the truck and was able to start it. And that's kind of a key point. He had to take an action to start the truck. Over the next two, two and a half, three hours in the Leveland area, the sheriff's department, the police department, the police dispatcher got numerous phone calls about this glowing red object in the area, stalling cars. Um, in the book, I think there, there's actually there's more than this, but there were people at 13 separate locations independently reporting us, this to the sheriff. And all in the space of two and a half hours. Now, this is before we got into um, social media. You couldn't go on TikTok. You couldn't go on Facebook. You couldn't go on Instagram. Um, you couldn't put up a video immediately of what had just happened to you so that when the Air Force said, well, some of this was a result of the hysteria going on in the area at the time, it's kind of a misnomer because that wasn't being communicated the way it would be in today's environment. But eventually the sheriff, and I hate the guy's name, it's Weir Clem. I wish it was something like Jack Armstrong or James Bond or something, anything better than Weir Clem. Good, good fellow. I actually have a video a video of him talking to a reporter that I was able, I shouldn't say I was able to find, uh, David Muller sent that to me. But he eventually decided he needed to go out and take a look for this thing. Uh, he went out in what I think of as a mini convoy. He was in his patrol car with a uh, one of his deputies. Behind him was the Texas Department of Public Safety. I think it was called that even back then, uh, more of the highway patrol. And here's the key that comes up in, in, in my report alone, and that is they were followed by a car with Air Force officers in it. So in other words, we have the sheriffs, we have the state police, we have the Air Force. Um, the reports in the days afterwards and the years afterwards was that they saw a red streak in the distance. But I found newspaper reports prior to the Air Force showing up to investigation where the sheriff said he had seen an object, called it oval-shaped or football-shaped. Later on, he was interviewed by a guy named Don Berliner, I think in 1974, 1975, and um, the sheriff talked about, again, seeing the object, seeing an object. In the official report, to the Air Force, he says only that he saw a streak of light. A fellow named Don Berlinson, and yeah, there's a lot of Dons in the story, uh, came up with um, the mechanic for the Sheriff's Department, the Police Department, back in 1957. Uh, Berlinson was doing his investigation around 2000. Talked to the mechanic and said, well, the day after this took place, the Sunday, November 3rd, the Sheriff brought his car in to have it examined. The only reason the sheriff would have brought his car in to have it examined the next day as if the engine stalled. He was looking for a reason the engine would have stalled. So now what we have is not only the sheriff telling us that he saw an object, but close enough for the car engine to stall. And if his car engine stalled, the car engine behind him stalled. And if that car engine stalled, then the car behind them stalled, and that would be the Air Force officers. So now we have evidence that Air Force officers were involved in this thing. Their car was stalled, and there is nothing in the official file to suggest that Norman Barth, who was the um, investigator who came from Ent Air Force Base to Level Land on um, the uh, Tuesday after the sighting. Sightings took place on a Saturday night, Sunday morning. He was there Tuesday. Spent seven hours, seven whole hours investigating this case. 
No indication he talked to the Air Force officers. Well, clearly somebody did. Somebody would have interviewed those guys, whether it was Barth or somebody else much higher in the food chain. Barth was a mid-level NCO. I have been unable to find those reports or any indication of them. Barth returned to an Air Force base and told the um, his superiors there that um, <clears throat> these these sightings were probably the result of ball lightning. In 1957, the scientific community was arguing about the existence of ball lightning. And if you take a look at the literature today, you still see there's an argument about the existence of ball lightning. So they were using a phenomenon that nobody sure really existed to explain another phenomenon that uh, we're trying to determine whether or not it, it exists. That's the official answer today, that it was ball lightning. Uh, I don't understand why they would continue with that. But the problem here is that the um, explanation shows the cover-up because they were grasping at any straw they could to explain away these UFO sightings in Level Land, Texas. Uh, an hour or so later, around three o'clock in the morning, this object showed up at White Sands Missile Range and uh, MP patrol was close enough to uh, get a good look at the object. And I spoke to one of the, the men who was on the MP patrol. The Air Force spent a lot of time trying to dismiss them as being undereducated, um, undertrained, hysterical because of the sightings going on in the area, which turns out not to be true. And they made fun of their age. They were 20 and 21. And as I've said on this program many, many times, I was 19 years old as a helicopter pilot aircraft commander in Vietnam, and nobody thought anything about me being hysterical, undertrained. I was able to do the job. Point simply is all this leads to the conclusion that no matter what was seen at Level Land or White Sands, the Air Force worked very hard to suppress the information and belittle the witnesses. And I think we need to understand that when we're looking at the Level Land case. I will be back right after this, so please stick around. And I am back. We were talking about uh, a lot of things in the UFO field that I find a little bit less than credible. For those of you who are interested in more information, I've done um, literally 1,200 blog posts about uh, various aspects of this. You pick a keyword and type it into the search engine available at the blog, and you will uh, come up with some of the articles I have, which will explain some of this a little bit more in depth. And of course, some of the books have additional information. For example, uh, Roswell in the 21st Century has a long segment on NJ-12 and the problems with that. And I was had just finished a book um, in the last few weeks called Understanding Roswell. And what we were doing as we are approaching the 25th anniversary of the Roswell case, and I say we, the publisher and I, thought it would be a good idea to re-examine the case from, a well, a different perspective. And in the book, what I've done is we hear about uh, any number of the, the witnesses, especially Colonel Blanchard's staff, for example, Colonel Blanchard being, of course, the commanding officer of the 509th Bomb Group. And a number of his senior officers were deeply involved in this sort of, sort of thing. And I looked at the backgrounds of those guys and explained where they were, what they did, and uh, what happened to them. Uh, one of the Rumors that had gone around about the um, the Roswell case was that uh, the operations officer in July of 1947, a guy named Hopkins, had disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. 
Actually, I think they said it was Payne Jennings, but it's, it's a guy named Hopkins. And I looked for that. And again, the internet is a wonderful research tool for us to do those sorts of things. And I discovered that his plane had crashed some 600 miles, 700 miles southwest of Ireland. They were transporting, and this is this is kind of the odd thing, a, a large number of people from Roswell to England, they were transferring some of the activities of 509th Bomb Group to England. And this was this was not in 1947. It was in the in the 1950s. It happened. And the plane went down. There was a Mayday call. Uh, plane was dispatched from England. They found the uh, wreckage and the guys in their life rafts. Apparently everybody survived the crash. The problem was they couldn't get a boat, a ship out there until 19 or 20 hours later after the airplane. The airplane had to break off and return to its home station because it was running out of fuel. And by the time the ship got there, the life rafts were all gone. The people were all gone. They found very little wreckage. So nobody knows what happens to them. But here's the key. They were six or seven hundred miles away uh, from Ireland, southwest of Ireland. And if you take a look at the Atlantic Ocean, you find out that's nowhere near the Bermuda Triangle. It has nothing to do with the Bermuda Triangle. So we can eliminate that. Another one of the guys, and I think it was Payne Jennings, he was killed in the Korean War. And they were testing a huge bomb called, uh, I forget the name. It's not important. <laughs> Big, huge bomb, kind of a blockbuster thing. And uh, as they were practicing with this or testing things out, um, two of the engines on the B-29 carrying the thing went out and they realized they could not remain airborne with the bomb and they tried to jettison it and it detonated and destroyed the aircraft and he was killed in, in the explosion. So you know, there's some of the background of two of the people who were involved in the, in the Roswell case, two of the important people. But I looked at all of that. I looked at the Brazel family and it's interesting background in um, in Roswell. And, and just a brief note for those of you who don't know, um, Mac Brazel, I think, was the, um, was, uh, well, the Brazels were related to Wayne Brazel. Wayne Brazel was the guy who killed Pat Garrett in 1908. And uh, when we were doing research, I say research, Don Schmidt and I, another Don for this conversation, um, were, were riding uh, along with Bill Brazel and his pickup truck to go out to the debris field. And I had read a number of books about the Lincoln County Wars and that sort of thing. And in all of them, they said they didn't know what happened to Wayne Brazel. He, he disappeared from the scene after 1908, after he was acquitted for murdering Pat Garrett. He was acquitted, so he wasn't murder. It was self-defense or something. And I said to... Um, Bill Brazona. So well, Wayne Brazel didn't go to South America and die in a gunfight like uh, Butch Cash and the Sundance Kid. He didn't disappear for the scene. I don't know why all these historians who are writing about the Wayne Brazel and the Lincoln County Wars couldn't contact the Brazel family who still lived in the area for crying out loud. But we look at some of that stuff there. We look at um, some of the problems with the Jesse Marcel testimony, uh, Jesse Sr. in his testimony, what he had, he had said and what he had done. Look at all of that sort of thing as a way of bringing this whole thing into a uh, closer uh, perspective. But one of the things that I did do again here was talk about Project Mogul. And one of the things I point out in this book that I don't think had been pointed out before is Mac Brazel found this field full of metallic debris, strange debris, he said. 
And as, as I've mentioned, we all believe, we all know something happened at Roswell. Something happened in, in, in the Corona area where Razzle lived. There was some kind of crash. But he brought samples of it with him to the sheriff's office. And the thing is, if he brought samples of him of it to the sheriff's office, well, why would Jesse Marcel go to the ranch? He knew what he was looking at, what he brought, what Brazel allegedly brought in, according to the descriptions given in the newspapers a couple of days later, was he brought in uh, rubber and sticks and part of a balloon envelope. Well, if that's true, then there was no reason for Marcel to go out to the field with, with Cavett and that sort of thing. So um, a lot of the story would have changed significantly at that point, but it didn't. They went out to the field. Cavett said immediately when he saw the debris in the field, he knew what it was. Well, why didn't he know what it was when he saw it in the uh, sheriff's office? And uh, they would not have needed to go out. Besides that, and the one thing the skeptics just can't seem to stand, understand, uh, deal with, is the fact that according to the diary, written by Dr. Albert Crary. He was the leader of the project in Alamogordo at Holloman Air Force Base, launching the or Alamogordo Army Airfield, launching the Mogul balloons. His diary says flight number four, which is the culprit in this discussion, was canceled. Well, if the flight was canceled, how did it leave debris on the ranch? The other thing that they've done, which is somewhat disingenuous, is a lot of them will print a Mogul array from uh, the New York University studies, what it looked like, and it's how big it was and how long it was. But it's always from flight number two. When you get to New Mexico, they had reduced the size of the flight. So it wasn't as long as it was, and there were no ray wind targets on it. So if there are no ray wind targets, then that eliminates part of the problem, and that eliminates the pictures taken in Ramey's office because there were no ray wind targets available for them to have picked up and been fooled by. So we look at, I look at that stuff, but I also look at the mythology around Roswell and all the people who have come forward with their stories about how they were involved and what they did and what they saw. And there's been a lot of that, especially when we start talking about the bodies of the alien creatures. And I think to understand the Roswell case completely, you have to understand those stories and how they fit into the picture. I read a book, oh, gee, two decades ago called Stolen Valor. And this was about all the people who have come forward with their horrific tales of combat during the Vietnam War. And um, the point of the book was, here were all these people telling these stories, but they had no documentation to prove that they had served in Vietnam. They had no uh, documentation to prove that they had served in the military. And they would say things like, well, my records were completely uh, destroyed in the fire in St. Louis, for example untrue. Maybe their records were burned up, but they probably weren't because uh, most of the records destroyed were from World War I and part of World War II and was at the very end of the alphabet. But the thing is, I have a banker's box filled with documents from my service in the military. So if my records had burned up in St. Louis, I could have them reconstituted because I have the documentation to prove it from former DD Form 214s, which is what you get when you leave active duty to uh, other documentation, orders to participate in various exercises in schools, uh, the uh, certificates from those schools, travel vouchers to get to and from various activities in the military and all kinds of ancillary documentation. So if uh, you were to write to St. Louis to look for my records and they said, well, uh, you know, we couldn't find anything there, 
I could reconstitute those records. I could prove that I had served in the military, just as I said. In fact, if you go online, I found a picture from my flight school class um, from 1960, would have been 1967. And I hate to say that because it certainly gives my age away. But uh, I like, like I'm second from the left in the second row, bigger than life. So um, you can find that on, on online and you can go to the 187th Assault Helicopter Company website. and You can see a picture of me in Vietnam and a picture of me uh, in Iraq. So, I mean, I can prove the doc. I can prove it. And a lot of these people were, were not uh, able to produce even that much. Point here simply is when we move into the UFO arena, especially the big name cases like Roswell, we get an awful lot of witnesses who have come forward and said, yeah, I was there in 1947, and I saw this, and I saw that. John Keel, when we argued with him about the mogul balloon, no, he was the Japanese balloon explanation. We argued with him about that. He said, I suppose around 2000, we'll have dozens of people coming forward with their stories of having been at Roswell. And he got that right. We didn't have to wait till the year 2000. They were coming forward uh, uh, throughout the 1990s as well. And it tends to cloud the issue. And so when we're looking at the... Um, the Roswell case understanding, I tried to eliminate a lot of those stories by either not mentioning them because they are so completely bogus or providing alternative explanations for this testimony that was presented about the Roswell case. And I think it's important to take a look at all of that to understand what happened in Roswell and understand what's happening throughout the UFO field is we have an awful lot that awful lot of that kind of thing going on. I was stumbling there because I was thinking about all the um, videos that we get in today's environment about UFOs and UFO sightings. And an awful lot of those are created by people who are having fun. I know some people create them just to see if they can fool people. I know that some people create them just to uh, post on their blogs for um, clicks, things like that. So we have to look out for that. And, and that was kind of the purpose behind understanding Roswell is examining the case from the point of view of today uh, based on the investigation that's been going on for more than 30 years that Don and I began in 1989 and, and others began much earlier than that. Uh, that's about it for today. Uh, take a look at amazon.com for my books, please. Uh, please write a review. Please uh, uh, give it a rating. I would appreciate that. And I will be back in about 167 hours with a guest. So I'll see you then. Thank you for stopping by.